Welcome to Legacy Sport Live, stories of the people who are shaping the conversation at the intersection of sport, business and purpose. I'm Neil Duffy, co-author of our new book, Legacy Sport, how to win at the business of sport in the age of social good. Today I'm talking to Alan Herskovitz, a pioneer in the sports screening movement for several decades. Alan has been instrumental in linking sport to the drive towards a more sustainable planet, capitalizing on people's love of sport to get the sustainability message across. He shares with us his long and storied journey in the world of sports greening globally. Uh, the actually the misinformation coming out of the White House as it related to climate. And Bob Redford said, uh, sports. He said, we got to connect with sports. Uh, you know, right now, the environmental community, that's what he said back then in 2004. You know, we work in New York, we work in Los Angeles, we work in Miami, we work in Chicago, but we need to get to Alabama, we need to get to Arkansas, we need to get to Missouri. You know, how do we get to the masses? How do we promote climate literacy? How do we promote environmental literacy uh, to the heartland? And Redford said sports. And uh, I said, you know, I did this thing with the Eagles. Maybe we should start a sports project at NRDC. Another member of NRDC's board of trustees who was at that meeting is someone named Bob Fisher. Bob Fisher, uh, his father founded The Gap, the clothing store, The Gap. Uh, and Bob um, uh, was the vice chairman of the board of NRDC. And when Redford and I were talking about starting a sports program, uh, Bob Fisher said, Alan, I'm an owner of the Oakland Athletics baseball team. Why don't you write a letter to the commissioner of baseball uh, about creating an environmental program and I'll, I'll deliver the letter to him. So I wrote a letter to Commissioner Bud Selig uh, asking to meet with him to, uh, what I said was I'd like to meet to talk about building on the good environmental work that baseball was doing. I had absolutely no idea what environmental work baseball was doing, but I figured, some stadium somewhere was recycling something and I didn't want to write the commissioner of baseball letter saying, uh, I want to talk to you about reducing your environmental impacts because that would not come off very well. Within 10 days, I got a call from the, uh, executive vice president of major league baseball, letting me know that Bud Selig wanted to meet with me to talk about, uh, developing an environmental program at major league baseball. Uh, when Bud Selig retired a few years ago, I wrote an article in Sports Business Journal <clears throat> titled, The Greatest Environmentalist in the History of Sports. Little did I know, but Bud Selig was a major environmental advocate. And his daughters and his wife, his whole family was committed to environmental integrity. So he was very keen on doing this. And uh, make a long story shorter, uh, he and I decided to create uh, what became known and is still known as the Commissioner's Initiative on Sustainable Ballpark Operations. And um, what that involved was my colleagues and I at NRDC, we spent about two years from 2005 to 2007. We put together about a team of about a dozen people. We invested almost a million dollars uh, and we created environmental information for every baseball team, location specific. 
So if you were in Los Angeles, if you were the Dodgers, or if you're in New York, the Yankees or the Mets, or you know, if you're in Milwaukee, the information was specific to your venue, and it told you who to call about recycling, who to call about water conservation. Uh, you know, it, it, was a, it was a greening guide for every stadium. And uh, we worked on that quietly, confidentially for two years. And in 2007, the commissioner distributed that online resource, which if you printed it out, it would go over 3,000 pages. Uh, that online resource was distributed by Commissioner Bud Selig to every baseball team owner and every venue operator. And it was received very well. And in fact, uh, after that was done, uh, the commissioner and his staff asked me to actually help coordinate some seminars and workshops at uh, Major League Baseball industry meetings to describe this uh, uh, environmental resource, information resource. So we launched the Commissioner's Initiative on Sustainable Ballpark Operations with Major League Baseball in 2007 after about two years of quiet work. When that was, when that came out, um, early 2000, I got a call from a representative of uh, Commissioner David Stern at the NBA, who learned about the work we were doing with baseball. David Stern himself is a great environmentalist, little did I know, but he was a donor to NRDC, and his wife, Diane, sits on the board of Earth Justice, and he said, uh, he called me in and said, hey, um, I know what you did with baseball, could we do that with the NBA? So working with David Stern and his staff, um, we did the same thing. We created environmental information for every NBA team. It was a lot easier to do it for the NBA because many of the NBA teams are uh, located uh, coincidentally in the same place as baseball teams. So there was a coincidence of uh, location information that we were able to draw on. But then we launched, so we launched um, uh, uh, NBA Green. And um, and the pro and then the NBA shares nine arenas with the National Hockey League. So when the, when the commissioner of the National Hockey League and his staff learned about what we were doing for the NBA at arenas that they themselves used at the NHL, I got asked to meet with the commissioner of the National Hockey League, and we created NHL Green. So uh, by early 2007. Um, I had become the environmental advisor to Major League Baseball, to the NBA, and the National Hockey League. And we started to work with individual teams, with the Cardinals, with the Pirates, with the Yankees, uh, with the Red Sox. Um, and uh, I then met with the editors of Sports Illustrated. Uh, actually, I had had numerous meetings with them asking for them to do what I wanted was a cover story on, uh, on climate and sports. And I was getting a lot of resistance from the reporters and frankly, from their editors. They really didn't see that as you know, part of their agenda. Uh, and finally, after what was gonna be my final meeting with them, I was so exasperated that they were not, you know, I said, look, you know, Major League Baseball says climate change is real. The commissioner of baseball says climate change is real. The commissioner of the NBA says, you know, science is not just another opinion. You've got, and, 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 and sports is not political. If you've got the commissioners of these major leagues saying climate change is real, people should know about that. But I got a lot of resistance from the reporters and the editors of Sports Illustrated. But so at, at the end of this meeting where Terry O'Donnell, who was then the editor in chief of Sports Illustrated, was present, 
I was, as I was walking out of the room, I said, look, let me just say this, you know, every year Sports Illustrated puts on the cover a woman who's 98% naked uh, for your swimsuit issue. And I'm not going to tell you not to do that. Um, I'm not going to talk about your business plan, but I'm asking you for one cover that deals with the future of the planet. And as I was leaving, after I said that, they all laughed. But as I was leaving, Terry O'Donnell, the editor-in-chief, called me into his office and he said, we're going to do it. And in March of 2007, there was a cover story uh, on, in Sports Illustrated that showed a baseball player from the Marlins. Um, and it said, you know, as the planet changes, so do the games we play. Time to pay attention. Sports and global warming. And that came out. Uh, in March of 2007 on the cover of Sports Illustrated. <clears throat> Shortly after that happened, um, I was contacted by Billie Jean King, who saw that Sports Illustrated story and learned about my work. And uh, I got a note in my office one day, Alan, Billie Jean King would like to talk to you. Please call you know, Pam at the following number. So uh, I contacted Billie. And she said, you know, they had just named the National Tennis Center after me, uh, and I want to make sure it's environmentally responsible. I know what you're doing with baseball. I know what you're doing with basketball. I know what you're doing with hockey. I want you to, you know, work with me on the U.S. Open Tennis Championships. So Billy and I created the environmental program at the U.S. Tennis Association. Um, and, and then um, I got uh, contacted uh, by someone from uh, the commissioner's office of Major League Soccer, because at this point, baseball, basketball, hockey, and tennis were all uh, working with NRDC on environmental programs. So needless to say, Major League Soccer wanted to be part of that. And we created the, uh, the environmental program at Major League Soccer. In 2009, so, and we started to work with individual venues, uh, the focus originally was on energy efficiency audits. The focus was on how can we help these teams save money by doing the right thing. And needless to say, um, there was a tremendous amount of opportunity. Most, uh, no one in Major League Baseball, at, none of the, at the venues was measuring their energy. They were not measuring their water use. They were not measuring their waste generation. So the first thing we did was we set up measurement programs uh, to start capturing the data. And once you measure, you start to identify opportunities for efficiency enhancements. So suddenly, uh, the, uh, the Miami Heat discovers that they could save a million dollars. And uh, the uh, Seattle Mariners discover they could save $600,000. And uh, the Yankees discover they could save hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the Cardinals reduce their energy use by 25%. And they save hundreds of thousands of dollars. So because it was saving money, uh, the teams bought into it. And um, it became a pretty substantial part of my work at NRDC. And suddenly we had this sports program. And in 2009, I got a call from a, a representative of Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft. And uh, this gentleman, uh, his name is Jason Twill, called me and he said, hey, you know, we've been following your work. Uh, on greening with sports. We own three sports teams and we're wondering if you might uh, come out and talk to us about what we might do. And I said, you own three sports teams, what are they? And he said, well, we own the Seattle Seahawks, uh, we own the Seattle Sounders, and we own the Portland Trailblazers. I said, wow, you've got three teams from three leagues. I said, you know, I'm also working with the Seattle Mariners. That's a fourth team from a fourth league. 
And, you know, we know people at the Vancouver Canucks. Why don't we get all these leagues together and teams together and create some kind of a Pacific Northwest professional sports greening coalition? And he said, sounds good. Why don't you come on out? So I flew out to Paul Allen's headquarters in Seattle and we had a few meetings. And by the time the meetings ended, because I was advising the leagues in New York and I was also advising the Yankees and the Cardinals and the Red Sox and others, the Pirates, uh, we decided to make it a national coalition and we called it the Green Sports Alliance. So NRDC, um, we, we spent a couple hundred, uh, three, four hundred thousand dollars uh, creating uh, the platform that came to be known as the Green Sports Alliance. And in March of 2011, we announced the launch of the Green Sports Alliance. And we needed to do that at NRDC because the demand for participating in the work we were doing was overwhelming our resources at NRDC. So we needed to create a separate organization that could help manage uh, the dissemination of information more widely. Um, and the Green Sports Alliance was founded with six teams from six leagues. And now we know it's got hundreds of teams and venues that participate uh, throughout North America. And um, over the years, uh, I started to get inquiries from other parts of the world asking for uh, my assistance in helping to uh, replicate what we did in North America with the Green Sports Alliance and NRDC's work uh, in uh, other locations around the world. So uh, the International Olympic Committee and uh, UEFA uh, and Ru European Rugby uh, all contacted me. So I started to spend more and more time in Europe meeting with these organizations. And we decided that we were gonna create a Green Sports Alliance for Europe. But as it turns out, because the European-based federations are international, uh, we realize that it really can't be limited to Europe because, for example, you know, FIFA plays internationally, not just in Europe. Uh, the Olympics is international, not just in Europe. And also, um, the Europeans didn't like the word green uh, because green in Europe implies a certain political orientation. So we decided uh, to create... Uh, an international organization called Sport and Sustainability International, um, which is based in Geneva, although there's also uh, offices in the United States. Um, and that organization now has members in 50 countries around the world. Uh, you know, along the way, uh, I started to develop very close relationships with many teams. Uh, I was asked to throw out four first pitches at baseball games. Um, and uh, one team in particular, the New York Yankees, really took a great interest in what I was doing. And I was advising them for about 10 years. Uh, and then earlier last year, uh, in 2019, uh, early, the president of the Yankees said, look, you know, you've been advising us for 10 years. This issue is getting really big. Uh, we want to bring you on board uh, as our uh, science advisor. You're, you're our science advisor. Um, and um, uh, I said, you know, I said, great, there is no such thing as an environmental science advisor in sports. It goes, great, we want to be the first. So uh, the Yankees uh, hired me to become uh, their uh, environmental science advisor. And that's a, a role that I have as well. Um, so, you know, look, uh, what I discovered in the course of this work, when Bob Redford first said, let's get involved with sports, what he didn't know 
Um, but, you know, based on some work I did afterwards, uh, what he didn't know is that only 13% of Americans in 2005, only 13% of Americans follow science and 71% followed sports. Today, in 2020, about 16% of Americans follow science and over 80% follow sports. So, you know, you've got less than 20% of the population following science and you've got four-fifths, 80% following sport every day in every newspaper in the country, there is a sports section. Uh, so the question for those of us who are trying to promote environmental literacy and frankly also to reduce the cultural polarization around the conversation related to climate, there's no reason for us to ignore sports. In fact, it would be ridiculous to ignore it. Uh, it's a spectacular platform that is that is viewed as being nonpartisan, nonpolitical. And as I said earlier, the supply chain of sport uh, involves every industry. So if you've got the Yankees saying climate change matters and we want energy efficient technologies or we want healthy food or we want safer chemicals or recycled paper, uh, then the marketplace is getting a message about the need for environmentally better products uh, in a non-political way uh, from the marketplace itself. So, um, and now we've got, I think, frankly, at this point uh, in 2020, uh, I believe that the sports environmental movement, the sport and sustainability movement, is one of the most vibrant uh, uh, sectors of the environmental movement globally. Uh, I could speak from personal experience, having worked for 40 years in uh, with NGOs in this space, that I feel I'm making more progress on climate, on energy, on uh, a, a public education, on healthy food than I've ever made in my life through the sports industry. Um, needless to say, it's complicated to do this work. Uh, it's not, uh, you know, the, the sports industry has its own logic, its own business approach to business. And, um, you know, it takes a little while to understand you know, how to serve that industry uh, in, in a way that makes the most sense for them while we advance our uh, ecological objectives. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's sort of a comic book version, and I apologize for being so long-winded, but that's sort of a, a comic book version of the evolution of how I got to the situation I'm in right now. Well, you're certainly an easy guy to interview. I <laughs> don't... <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, uh, I've never actually heard that story from start to finish. So it's fascinating. Um, you should write your own book. Um, but it's, 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 it's interesting to see how, you know, that, that trajectory that you took us through really mirrors the evolution of, of, of uh, environment and sport, um, you know, almost year for year as we sit here in 2020. So, I mean, I, I would agree with you. I think that sport is, you know, there's a huge amount of energy and excitement around the potential that sport has to play in leading us as a society towards a more sustainable future. Um, and there's a big focus over the next 10 years on the sustainable development goals and um, everything that, that they represent. Um, what, what would your advice be to um, practitioners out there or you know, leaders in business, uh, executives in, business, in sport business, who are maybe just considering this, you know, this, this space for the first time? How would you suggest that they best approach um, onboarding a more scientific environmental um, philosophy to how they go about managing their businesses? 
Well, um, look, um, if you read, you know, I'm a subscriber to the Harvard Business Review. I, you know, I do market-based environmentalism. I used to work on government-based environmentalism on regulations and laws, but for, you know, almost 30 years, I've been mostly doing market-based environmentalism. And uh, right now, you know, if you're not sustainability literate, uh, you're not going to succeed as a leader in the business sector. Uh, that's not just my opinion. Uh, that is, you know, from the Harvard Business Review, that's widely recognized now. Um, sustainability reporting is uh, increasingly demanded by investors, by the public, by the media, uh, in fact, by players and fans. Uh, so really the key thing is that um, while it is the right thing to do, uh, we need to recognize that because it's the right thing to do does not mean it will be embraced by business, you know, because the ruthlessness of the market does not go away because you have good intentions. Uh, you know, we have to outcompete the bad stuff. So really uh, what I do, and you know, and I'm working with organizations around the world, helping them develop sustainability plans and actually implement them uh, is basically we have to um, show how sustainability advances the purpose and the strategy of the business. Um, the idea of sustainability today in sport is to enhance the profitability, enhance the branding. Uh, it's basically to help the organization achieve its goals more effectively. Uh, we're not going to be able to deal with what we have to deal with biologically, scientifically, based only on good ethical behavior or philanthropy. We have to build this into the uh, imperative of the marketplace. Uh, businesses, sports businesses need to see sustainability as essential to their future success. That being said, Recently, I just spent a month in Australia uh, in, the, in the beginning of this year of 2020, um, and, you know, I was there during the bushfires. And, you know, we, you have a situation where uh, cricket matches are being canceled because of heat, uh, tennis matches are being canceled because of smoke, uh, 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 attendance at sporting events is uh, going down because uh, people don't want to be in super hot arenas. So the sports industry itself is starting to recognize that its own viability in terms of attendance and fan participation and elite players uh, who are being affected by excessive heat or smoke, that their sport that itself is being uh, at risk by climate disruption. Um, at, the, at the Australian Open, where I, I I, I, I made half a dozen presentations to the leadership and to their sponsors. Um, you know, during the qualifying matches, uh, one tennis player collapsed because of smoke. Um, and there was a question at one point was, you know, will the Australian Open Tennis Championship actually be able to be held in light of the fires? Uh, yeah. What we have a situation is every community where there is a sports organization is being affected by climate. Every community that hosts a sports organization is being affected by climate. Our neighborhoods are on fire. Our neighborhoods are flooding. 
we are having more and more climate refugees in our own country, whether it's the United States or Australia or Europe. And this is, of course, not going unnoticed by the owners uh, of sports organizations and, and the officials that run them. You know, one thing, as you know, uh, from your work at the Super Bowl uh, and you know, your work in general, sports organizations are especially attuned to the sentiments of their community. You know, every business looks for uh, repeat customers. Every business wants customer loyalty, but nothing compares to the kind of customer loyalty that sports teams have. I mean, nobody walks around, you know, with hats. You know, when I was in Australia, I never saw more Yankee hats in my life. You know, people uh, support sports organizations by wearing their apparel. Uh, sports loyalty is passed down generation to generation in families. Um, it, there is an allure to sports uh, where people actually self-identify with their sports team. It's not like they're going to a movie to watch a, or a theater to watch an event. When they're at a sporting event, they feel that they are an owner, that they actually are a participant in that game. So the sports industry leadership really have to pay attention to uh, public sentiment. And right now, 80% uh, of people in the United States say climate change is real. Over 70% of people in the United States say sports organizations should do something about climate change, that they have a responsibility to do something. And those numbers are only going to go up as the uh, consequences of ecological uh, challenges become more and more uh, impactful on our lives. I don't know if I just interrupt you a second there. So do, do you see the same, um, same type of numbers in other parts of the world in terms of, of fan, fan sensitivity to climate change? Well, actually, it's even greater uh, in Australia and in Europe. Um, you know, uh, I mean, frankly, uh, in the United States, you've had more climate denialism. Uh, remember, in Europe, for example, the government is proportional representation. It's a parliamentary democracy. So if the Green Party gets 10% of the vote, they get 10% of the seats. So the ability of the environmental community to influence government policy internationally, abroad, especially in Europe, is much greater than the ability of environmentalists to influence the government policy in the United States. Um, so actually, um, and of course, the Paris Agreement, you know, based in Paris and in Europe, mobilized Europe. Uh, so the answer is yes. Um, you know, whether it's in India and in Pakistan, which had to cancel soccer games because of heat. Uh, whether it's in the Middle East, where FIFA had to move, uh, you know, soccer games to a different time of year because of heat, uh, or in Europe, uh, where heat and fires uh, and floods uh, and the science of climate uh, is mobilizing the population. So, yeah, there's no question that we now have a, uh, a global awareness of uh, environmental issues in a way that we never had. So, something else that's that. Um... Um, I'd like you to talk about is the UNFCCC Sport for Climate Action Initiative. Um, it's, yeah. You know, it's the first, I think it's the first global movement around the environment with sport coming together around a shared mission. Um, and what, what are your views on all of that? Well, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm enthusiastically supportive of the UNFCCC's Sport for Climate Action Framework. In fact, 
frankly, I think that the work that we did in North America, creating the Commissioner's Initiative uh, on Sustainability for Baseball, creating NBA Green, creating uh, NHL Green, uh, working with teams throughout North America, uh, I know for a fact, because you know I'm based in New York and I deal with the UN a lot, um, I know for a fact that that work helped the United Nations uh, gave them uh, inspiration to actually start to create a sports sector climate initiative. I happen to uh, be the co-chair of the UNFCCC's work group on responsible consumption and production. Um, one of the first things I did when I was uh, officially appointed to the Yankees is I got the Yankees to sign the UNFCCC uh, Sport for Climate Action Framework Pledge. The Yankees became the first North American team to sign the UNF pledge, UNF Triple C's pledge. Um, and once that happened, the Yankees are not known for being a left wing, you know, environmental advocacy group. Uh, the Yankees are known for uh, their commitment to excellence, performance, sound business practices, um, and, you know, nonpartisanship. Um, so when the Yankees signed that UNF Triple C pledge, suddenly the NBA felt, oh, now we could sign. And the USTA said, oh, we could sign. And AEG, which owns about 120 venues in, around the country, around the world, they said, okay, we're going to sign. And then the, the Golden State Warriors and the, and, the, and the Los Angeles Kings. So, you know, there are signifiers in sports. Not all sports teams are equal. When I first met with the commissioner of baseball back in 2005, he said, he, told, he gave me a number of things to guide me. I, he was mentoring me on how to, you know, navigate the sports business uh, language and, and infrastructure. And one of the things he told me was there's baseball and there's the Yankees. Um, and, uh, you know, the Yankees are the most historic of baseball teams. They happen to be probably one of the most historic sports team of any kind in the world. And they're extremely visible. Uh, they are the most the most popular sports apparel uh, in the world is uh, associated with the Yankees. So they're extremely visible. So when the Yankees signed the climate pledge, and we did an on-field ceremony with the Deputy Secretary General of the UN, myself, the manager of the Yankees, the senior VP of the Yankees, and we had on the scoreboard right before a, a game at Yankee Stadium on uh, United Nations uh, uh, climate pledge, that was a gig, you know, and that that appeared in Sports Business Journal that went all over the world. And suddenly, um, really, at that point, uh, there was no denying that sustainability in sports was now mainstream. Mm. Do you see um, what do you see any risks in, in the, the model, Alan, in terms of it's, you know, it's one thing to make a pledge. It's another to live up to it. What do you see the challenge? Well, the. Going the forward? Yeah, well, the pledge is based on actions that you already have undertaken. Um, so uh, there is more to do, but the pledge is actually quite um, uh, basic in terms of what it's, a it's asking for the development of a program committed to environmental sustainability. It's asking for a commitment to educate fans about environmental stewardship. It's asking for a uh, uh, a program to uh, prioritize responsible, uh, environmentally responsible production uh, and consumption. Uh, so basically, 
if you are a member of the Green Sports Alliance, if you have a program to measure your energy uh, and you're doing public outreach about your work in the environment, well, then you satisfy the criteria of the framework so you could sign the pledge. But the pledge asks for continuous improvement. And, you know, as we know, I mean, look, uh, when Yankee, so the current Yankee Stadium was opened in 2009, it replaced the original Yankee Stadium. Um, and when they built that stadium in 2009, they used, you know, high efficiency lighting, high efficiency technologies all around. Well, right now, you know, we just recently over the last two years replaced all the lights with LEDs because new technologies have come around. So, you know, as you know, the sustainability movement is iterative. It's, it's a process. The technology is constantly evolving. The ecological challenges are constantly evolving. Um, and uh, so uh, keeping up with the maintenance of your venue for uh, environmental purposes also helps you keep up with regards to finance, revenue, and branding. And one thing that I've experienced, which is really wonderful, Sports teams, of course, are funded by sponsors. And uh, 80% of the sponsors of the National Hockey League have their own, have produced their own sustainability report. The majority of sponsors of the Yankees have produced sustainability reports. If you go online, the Yankees have 150 different suppliers. Um, and if you go online uh, to look at those suppliers, virtually all of their websites have a section about their sustainability program. So when the Yankees creates a platform to get the message out on sustainability, they are broadening the opportunity for their sponsors to communicate about their social issues, about their good branding objectives. Uh, and, and I'm not gonna name names right now, but uh, I could tell you that some of the most prominent organizations in the world that happen to be sponsors of the Yankees are in conversations with the Yankees about how to use their relationship with the Yankees to promote, whether it's electric vehicles or smarter textiles or healthier food or safer chemicals. Um, you know, they all want to figure out now that the Yankees have announced, you know, they want to get to net carbon zero and that they're interested in healthy food, and they're looking to reduce the toxicity of any chemicals, suddenly the vendors of those types of products, who happen to be some of the largest companies in the world, are saying, oh, wow, you know, that actually aligns with what we're, what we're doing, so now we could talk about it in our partnership with the Yankees. Right. Well, doing good and doing well, that's what it's all about, right? Exactly, exactly. So that's a great, great point to end off on, Alan. Thank you. Um, I'm exhausted having listened to that. I mean, you've had an, <laughs> <laughs> you've had an amazing career. Thank, thank you for everything you've done. I mean, you've certainly um, laid the groundwork for the next phase of this movement that's, that's now starting to take off. So thank you once again. Um, and yeah, well, you've still got lots of years left in you, so you're not allowed to stop yet, huh? Yeah, thank you. And, you know, I know you say, you know, write a book. I have been thinking about it. I've been taking notes and this and that. But you know what? Right now, the implementation work I'm doing is so meaningful and substantial that um, it's not time for me to write a book because um, the opportunities to actually make on the ground changes that have that are before me um, and the kind of organizations I'm collaborating with um, don't allow me, you know, the luxury of sitting back and 
and writing a book. I am taking notes and I, you know, put together some text and stuff like that. And of course, you know, people often ask me to write a book. I give speeches and this and that, but really um, the most important thing I could do right now and my focus is on every little opportunity to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, I'm leaving no stone unturned. Uh, and as you know, from your work, this stuff is complicated, you know, getting people to allocate money, getting or complex organizations. The question is, how do you get a complex organization like a sports league or a sports team committed to sustainability as a business practice? Um, that takes a lot of work and uh, in many regards, you know, technical work. There are three barriers to sustainability. There's technical barriers, there's um, uh, financial barriers, and there's cultural barriers. And the cultural barriers are the most challenging, uh, what's often called standard operating procedures. You know, if we have a the most important thing we could do to advance sustainability is instigate a cultural shift in attitudes about how we relate to the planet. The most important thing we could do is instigate a cultural shift in attitudes and expectations about how we relate to the planet. How should we relate to the ecosystems that give us air to breathe? How should we relate to the ecosystems that give us water to drink? You know, we treat the atmosphere like a sewer. We treat our water resources like a sewer. Um, so we have to change attitudes. And once you change attitudes, then money gets allocated to invest in new technologies. You know, in 1960, when President Kennedy said, let's put a man on the moon within 10 years, we didn't have the money or the technology. But what he did was he instigated a cultural shift that mobilized the country. And that cultural shift resulted in money being allocated and engineers being put to work. And within 10 years, we had a man on the moon. Um, and you know, that's what we need now as it concerns climate. And the question is, how do you change people's minds? How do you influence behavior? What are the platforms available to us? We know that most people don't want, uh, read science. We know that government is divided. We know that religion, another important platform, is divided as well. In fact, I was asked to an audience with the Pope to talk about sport at the service of humanity. The Pope himself recognized the need to use sport as a platform to get people's attention. Um, so sport offers us a spectacular platform to influence the culture of the marketplace in a nonpartisan, nonpolitical way that is economically very influential. And this is why you're writing your book. And this is why, you know, you are as influential and visible as you are, because you're a leader in this space. Um, you know, I mean, so God bless you for what you're doing. Um, and, you know, let's just keep it up. <laughs> let's keep going. Alan, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. All right, brother. Take it easy. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to this edition of Legacy Sport Live, the companion podcast series to our new book, Legacy Sport, how to win at the business of sport in the age of social good. Please visit our website at www.legacysport.org to order your copy of the book and join our growing community of sports business professionals committed to doing good while doing well through sport.